This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to ask you for money. I've been producing the Memory Palace for almost four years. The podcast has always been free and it always will be free. But I have been doing it for four years for free. And that goes a long way toward explaining why the Memory Palace doesn't come out very often. Because producing this podcast is hard. It takes a lot of work. And that work doesn't pay a single bill. Three months ago, the Memory Palace became part of the Maximum Fun Network. And I did this for a couple of reasons. First, because I wanted more people to listen to it. I like it. And second, because what they do, what Maximum Fun does, is something I really believe in. Uh, Jesse Thorne, um, who's sort of a giant in the very tiny business of podcasting, um, and his wife, Teresa, and a handful of other people that I'm only now just getting to know, have built something kind of amazing. They've come up with a business model that allows people to get paid to make what they want to make. It's kind of punk rock. It's kind of public radio. And both of those models have been extremely important in my life. So twice a year, and this is one of those times, they ask their listeners for money. They ask people to become monthly members of Maximum Fun. And people like you and me, I am actually a monthly member of Maximum Fun, throw in some money. And that money gets distributed to the podcasters and to the people who keep the network running. It's as simple as that. And it's because they do that that I am now producing episodes every month. And it's because you're going to help right now that I can keep doing that. Now, if this bugs you, skip ahead. Uh, The new episode will start in a couple minutes. And I won't be asking you for money again for about six months or so. And you'll be able to skip ahead then too. But if you do want to help, If you want to support what I'm doing now, if you want to support the network that is helping me do it, or if you want to show your appreciation for what you've heard from me and from this podcast in the past, now's your chance. I want you to become a member of Maximum Fun. It's a monthly membership. You can pay with your credit card or with PayPal. You can pay two bucks a month. You can pay 200 bucks a month. You can pay whatever you want. And I'm not going to stop you from making a one-time donation. But here's why I'm asking you to sign up for the monthly membership. Think of it like this. By becoming a member of Maximum Fun, you are becoming a partner with the Memory Palace. I take it you've been to the theater. A theater company can put on a show because people buy a ticket. But a theater company can function as a theater company because of all those people listed in the front of the program. The donors, the patrons, the sponsors, the president, circle, gold star, whomever's. Those people aren't just theater goers, they're partners, because they believe in what the theater does. And so I'm asking you to become a partner. And here's what I want you to do. Go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. A thing comes up and it'll give you the choice of membership levels from $2 a month to $200 a month. Figure out what you want to give. You put in your credit card info, and boom, you're a member. It gets charged every month, cancel any time. I think you can figure out how it works. Something will come up that will ask you what your favorite Maximum Fun program is. Kindly click the Memory Palace. It makes a difference for me. This is your way to help me do what I do. It's a pledge drive. And like any good pledge drive, there are premiums, but we don't have a tote bag or Andrea Bocelli DVDs. If you become a member of Maximum Fun today and support what I'm doing at the Memory Palace, and support the people who are helping me do it. Uh, There's a special hour-long interview with me 
conducted by Jesse Thorne, the host of Bullseye, if that's your thing. But you can only listen to that if you're a member. There are Maximum Fun t-shirts, which actually look are super cool. And for every new member at $10 a month or more, Maximum Fun is donating 20 meals to the Los Angeles Food Bank. So there you go. So go do it. Go to MaximumFun.org. Click on Donate. Choose your level. Click on the Memory Palace as your favorite show. And you're all set. And thank you so much. And anyway, here is episode 47. The Rise and Fall of Rising and Falling. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. The world zigged and zigged and zigged and zigged again. Roger Babson zagged. That's how he did things. He was a maverick, or so he'd tell anyone who would listen. He didn't take no for an answer. He turned no's to yeses. He'd flip the script. He'd think outside of the box. Or whatever it was that people said back when he was cutting his teeth in the investment business at the turn of the last century. He was an iconoclast. He had been. He would tell anyone who would listen. Since one day when he was a boy, and his sister drowned in the salty water of a tidal river that flowed into Ipswich Bay in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Her death gave him a purpose and a drive that led him to MIT and to Wall Street. And when he was a young man and a doctor told him that he had tuberculosis, that he should quit the business and move to the Southwest, where the desert air would revive him, Roger Babson zagged. Instead, he moved to the top of the Wellesley Hills, outside of Boston, theorizing that he didn't need drier air. He needed higher air. And he needed a lot of it. Everyone did. He founded a company that did statistical analysis of financial markets. It was the kind of Wall Street work one could do without actually working on Wall Street. His office was not only outside of New York, it was outside. He thought fresh air was good. And in winter, he and his employees would wear sweaters and layers and tap away at adding machines with freezing fingers that poked through holes they'd cut in their gloves. This was the late 1920s. And as this is, at least in part, a story of Wall Street, you know that the crash is coming. But here's the thing. So did Roger Babson. Throughout 1928, in the first half of 1929, when the markets kept climbing, Roger Babson was telling people to sell. It kept zigging and zigging up and up. And Roger Babson was one of the only, literally, one of maybe two people out there telling people to zag. There was going to be a crash. He told anyone who would listen. And then there was. And Roger Babson made a fortune. Because not only was he one of the few major investors who still had any money at all, the people who just lost all of theirs looked out over the landscape littered with bankrupt ziggers and they saw one financial firm still standing. And so they looked to Babson as an oracle, as a Warren Buffett, or at least a Jim Cramer. And more money rolled in. Now, he didn't sell off before the crash merely because he was a zagger constitutionally. He sold off because he had a theory about the way the markets worked. And investors love a theory. It went like this. Babson had poured over decades' worth of stock market data, and he saw a pattern that no one else had seen. The markets went up, and they went down. Others noticed that too, of course. Big spikes in the market were unsustainable, markets corrected, investors made adjustments. Market capitalism. 
But Roger Babson saw a different force at work. As a boy, he'd read Isaac Newton. He knew that there was an equal and opposite reaction for every action. So why wouldn't the rules that bring order to the physical world also apply to the financial world? Why wouldn't a rise in stock or commodity or real estate prices not eventually yield to a reactive decline? It was physics. It was the forces of gravity at work. Except that it wasn't. Because it's not the forces of gravity at work. Because his theory is terrible. But when people who just lost their shirts turn to just about the only guy with a shirt, they like the sound of Newton. Newton was scientific. Roger Babson was a man of science. And they asked Roger Babson to handle their money. They bought his books. They paid to hear him speak. And though his theory as to why the markets work the way they do was totally wrong, it still kind of works. Because all of his charts and data sets and Newtonian physics, they basically all just add up to buy low and sell high. And so he made a lot of money, even if he had no idea why. And then it came time to spend it all. He had an enemy. And that enemy was gravity. Because it was gravity, he theorized, that caused his tuberculosis. He had this theory that was crazy about how heavy air settled into your lungs when you were at low altitudes. And it was gravity, he wrote in a 1948 essay titled Gravity, Our Enemy Number One, that held his sister beneath the surface of the water all those years ago. They said she was drowned, he wrote. But that was not true. She was unable to fight gravity. And he writes gravity with a capital G, like it was the name of a man or a god. He wrote, she was unable to fight gravity, which came up and seized her like a dragon and brought her to the bottom. And that is an enemy worth fighting. So he poured millions into anti-gravity technologies. Millions upon millions, year after year, decade after decade. He started a company, Invention Incorporated, that bought any patent that he thought might someday have something to do with freeing us from gravity's pull. And he saw billions to be made if he could do that. Billions in diseases cured, in cars elevated, in the fallen rescued before they hit the ground. And even though physicists told him over and over that this simply wasn't going to happen, that there was no way, no how, that gravity couldn't be stopped any more than death, he kept going. He zagged and zagged and zagged. Now, this is the part of the story where I'm supposed to tell you about how Roger Babson collapsed under the weight of his crackpot theories. About how maybe he winds up shouting his theories from the top of an apple cart on the corner of Wall Street and Broad, wild-eyed and bearded while oblivious brokers and Brooks Brothers stream by. Or at the very least, I'm supposed to point out that despite all of his wealth and all of his will, he would never be able to pull his sister out of the Anisquam River. I'm supposed to do that because what goes up must come down. That's the way physics works, and it's the way stories work. Stories have rules. They have morals. Don't play God. Don't fly too close to the sun. But Roger Babson doesn't come down. He lives a long and, by all accounts, happy life. He founds Babson College. He dies at the age of 92. He gets a fancy obituary in the Times that relegates his wrong-headed life's pursuit of the reversal of gravity to a discreet paragraph. 
because that's not what people wanted to remember about Roger Babson. But it is what I want you to remember about Roger Babson. Because this story does have a moral, and it's this. If you have a lot of money, you can do whatever the f*** you want. 